You're listening to a series from the Book of Mark. Come and see, believe, and follow the Messiah from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more audio and other resources, visit theaxischurch.org. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits or loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange or return for his soul? As we enter this chapter 14 in the book of Mark, our 60th week, we come to the final moments of the life of Christ leading up to his resurrection. It's Passover week. Tens of thousands of Jewish pilgrims from all over the world have made their way into downtown Jerusalem as they prepare to observe Passover. The religious at this point have had it with Jesus. They're over it. They're ready for him to be done with. Jesus is fearlessly knowing this. He's fearlessly in the temple every day teaching. In the evenings, he slips out to the little suburb of Jerusalem called Bethany. He goes there to sleep. He does this for at least two reasons. One, for probably safety's sake, and the other is uh, the city itself is just so overwhelmed and crowded with with the Passover pilgrims making their way there. The religious leaders, the Herodians, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the scribes, the Sadducees, they're all working together. They're trying to trap Jesus. They're asking him questions, not to learn a single thing from Jesus, but get him to mess up, slip up, so they can have him arrested and killed. Throughout the previous chapter, in chapter 13, we've looked at that over the last two sermons in, this, in our study, Jesus warns and prepares his disciples for the persecution that's coming their way. Not only that, Jesus mentioned um, over and over about his return and their need, and therefore our need, to be prepared for his appearing. I love what Pastor Derek pointed out this week in staff meeting is that the early church fathers, they didn't consider it a second coming of Christ because he's with us already. They considered it his appearing. So in chapter 13, Jesus is preparing us and his followers for his appearing. Jesus told them and therefore tells us that no one knows exactly when he's going to return except God the Father and that we would be very wise and faithful to be ready waiting, and fully prepared for whenever Jesus does appear. And when he does, and when he long for this day, we wait for this day. This day has not happened yet, but it will. When he does return, and he is making that appearance, he'll gather his elect and his chosen, the bride, the apple of his eye, the center of his heart, the church. And then he will make war against those who refused him and rejected him. He'll judge them and send them to eternal condemnation. With this, we come to our text this morning. I pray that you're encouraged and strengthened by the reading and preaching of God's word. And friend, what you're about to hear is truth. And I pray that you remove your skepticism and your pride. And just for a moment, you humble yourselves before the word of God. You never know this could change your life and eternity. In chapter 14, of the Gospel of St. Mark, 
in verse 1. It says, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is where the children of Israel would remember their exodus from Egypt and their 40 years of wilderness wanderings. It was a festival to remember that, commemorate that, observe that. And the chief priests and the scribes were investigating and seeking how to arrest him by some sort of trickery or deceit or stealth. That's what that means. And they wanted to kill him or execute him, assassinate him is what that means. For they said, let's not do this during the festival. Let's not do this during the feast, lest there be an uproar, a riot from the people. You see, at this point, there's only one way forward with Jesus. He's got to be killed. Things have reached a breaking point. The religious, they're, they're aggressively pursuing the end of Jesus Christ and his teaching and his influence, his presence, his authority, his words. They want him out. The religious were fighting what we all fight at different times in our lives. They were struggling with the fear of man. They were scared of the people. They feared what would happen if more people followed Jesus. They feared that they would lose more money and power and control if Jesus continued preaching about his kingdom, which was so antithetical to theirs as it is yours and me and mine. Because they were afraid and insecure, they want Jesus removed, dead. But how can they, how can they accomplish this when he's so favored, he's so liked, and public? I mean, he's in the temple every day. He's teaching all the time. Well, little did they know that, that one of Jesus' very own disciples would be key in silencing Jesus. We'll get there in a moment, but first, a very intimate and special moment. Look in verse three. While he was still at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, I love that he still had that nickname, though he was changed and healed by Jesus. Uh, Simon, who was the leper. It's pretty cool. As he was eating a meal or reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of perfumed oil, ointment, of pure nard called spikenard. Very expensive, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now this woman, as we know from the same story being told by John in his gospel account, we know that this is Mary of Bethany, and she just wants to honor Jesus. In John chapter 12 and Matthew 26, we learn that Mary of Bethany pours an alabaster flask of about 12 ounces, almost a can, it's like 11 ounces, a very expensive ointment she pours out on the head and feet of Jesus. Something that was worth almost a year's wages. This is worship. It's beautiful. It's honoring. Such sacrificial giving of honor to appreciate Jesus. It doesn't make sense, but it's lavish. And some, look at verse 4, some were there who said to themselves with a lot of anger and uh, uh, indignantly, why was this ointment wasted? Why did you waste this on Jesus? Why was this wasted ruined, destroyed like this. Such disregard to what was happening. Their affections didn't match the worth of Jesus. For this ointment in verse five, this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 days wages, 300 denarii, and given to the poor. According to ZipRecruiter, the average person in America makes $644 a day. That's nearly $200,000 in today's currency. This was very expensive ointment. Why did, not, why did this not get sold and given to the poor? And they scolded her. A passionate and strong rebuke and warning. Don't you do that. Don't you ever do that again. That was so foolish. What were you thinking? 
They scolded her. That's too much to spend on Jesus, on anybody. That's not being faithful. You're not being a good steward. That's over the top, wouldn't you say? I mean, don't get too carried away here. They scolded her. In the presence of Jesus, they scolded her. You know, it's amazing how brash we can be in our pride and our reflexes when we're offended or when our pet idols of our hearts get pushed around. We don't like it. We get angry. Verse six, Jesus said, stop, leave her alone. Why do you pester her? Why do you trouble her? Why do you continue to cause her distress? So this might've been going on for a minute. It's like, why are you continuing to do this, guys? She has done a good thing, a beautiful thing to me. You're always gonna have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can go do good for them, but you'll not always have me like this. She has done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. This response of indignant anger, of the wastefulness and poor stewardship in this worship, this is a picture of us without the Holy Spirit changing our hearts and informing our way. I mean, some folks here in the story, they overvalue money and they undervalue Jesus. Mary loved Jesus. Others loved money. Mary glorifies Jesus and his worth. Others robbed Jesus of his worth. Many felt, uh, Mary, sorry, Mary felt unworthy and she saw Jesus as more than worthy. And so this made sense. This was just logical. This is what I'm supposed to do with this ointment. She embellished the most expensive object that she had in order to anoint Jesus, and it's still not enough. Her response was probably like, oh, I wish I had much more to do to pour out on top of Jesus. But this is all I have. Is this how you see Jesus? I mean, she knew Jesus was special. She valued him. She was undone and hopeless without Jesus Christ. She remembers what it was like to live by herself alone grasping for identity, grasping for worth, grasping for value, but then she met Jesus Christ and it changed everything about her. She knew that she was granted hope through Jesus Christ and so she treasured him. Hearing the words of Jesus from Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then Jesus also said, he who has been forgiven much loves much. Mary loved Jesus because Jesus first loved Mary. And her love and her affection and devotion, admiration and worship was in response to knowing the love and forgiveness of God through Jesus. She wasn't doing this to get the approval of Christ. She'd already felt that to her core. This was the response, the reflex of a heart being radically changed by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Church family, if any voice within your head or heart or from others on the outside tells you to be reasonable, with your love for Jesus, don't listen to them. Let your affections for Jesus be extravagant so that they match his worth. And when others see you extravagantly worshiping and admiring Jesus Christ, they'll wonder, is he really that special? Doesn't that, that's a little over the top. Then you get to tell them about how wonderful Jesus is. You know, the fact is there are things that Mary couldn't do. Jesus says she, she did what she could. She had this ointment. She could use this ointment 
to worship Jesus and to honor Jesus. She used what she had, and it was enough. And was there a better use of this ointment? Where else should, should, could she have spent this ointment and it be a better use? I can't think of one. Jesus says, leave her alone. Do not ask her to stop. Leave her alone because you're not always going to have me like this. Leave her alone because the poor you're always going to have with you. Your heart is wrong and you want money. Her heart is right and she wants me. You value money, she values me. You love the poor, then please go serve the poor. They'll be here, but me, I won't be like this for much longer, not in this way. And by the way, if it's the poor that you love and that you want to serve, then go. But it's not about the poor, is it? You don't love the poor. I know you. You love money. And you hate the expensive ointment that was wasted on me. Let her do this so that she can keep her joy and hope regarding me at my death. She'll need to remember this moment. Allow her this moment to treasure me. Truly, I say to you, verse 9, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will be told in her memory as it is right now today, April 23rd, 2023. Yet again, the prophecy of Christ rolls true. It's amazing. You know, every king in Judah was anointed before his coronation, and like this was to be his anointing. For Jesus, though, it wasn't administered by a prophet, but by a woman. This moment was a beautiful, symbolic preparation of his body for his burial. Mary knew that her king must die. She had understood the gospel. She had heard him speak, and she believed him. That's why whenever the gospel is preached around the world, her lavish sacrifice is remembered. Now, the timing and the context of what follows is intentional, and it's deeply connected and it gives a little insight into who it was exactly that was so indignant over this wasteful worship. Look here in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot was one of the 12, one of the 12 disciples, went to the chief priests in order to hand over Jesus to them, to deliver him over, to betray him to them. So he'd already reached this breaking point. In verse 11, when they heard it, they were glad, oh, so happy, they rejoiced, they celebrated and they promised to give him money. That kind of lets you know what he went for. Well, what can we give you in exchange for him? Well, some money. After what I just saw, money. Got to make up for this waste. And he strategically investigated or he sought an opportunity to betray him. He'd had enough. I mean, the events around the ointment and the waste of money all this drove Judas to such a point of anger and tension and frustration. He reached the point where he had to do something about this. And so he goes to the religious, religious leaders. Certainly Judas has gotten word that they were frustrated with Jesus. And so he was going to essentially go find a way of turning him in. And when Jesus met up with the religious, they were glad. That is ugly. That's gross. The religious leaders are finally happy from this point on, Judas was driven to arrest Jesus. This is what he lived for. Like the idol of his heart, money, drove him to do the unthinkable. How far he had come from the initial moment when in his joy he heard Jesus call to him and he ran to follow him. 
Judas accepts money and becomes a tool in the hand of the religious Pharisees. But more than that, he becomes a tool in the hand of Satan, the great deceiver and liar. He agrees to be their hitman, or at least their undercover private investigator. And the religious leaders are glad. Rarely do you see this. As far as I know, this is the only time in the four gospels where we read about the religious being glad. So Judas, Judas had to start thinking strategically. He had to start planning carefully. He's now considering how can Jesus be arrested quietly? Like the Pharisees need the assistance of Judas. They needed like an insider's help. And the fact is, rather than serving Jesus with this expensive ointment, in just a few hours, Judas is going to sell Jesus for much, 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 much less. In the Gospel of St. John's account, we're told that Judas was the treasurer of the disciples. And in John chapter 12 and verse 6, we learn that he was in charge of the money and that he would often, quote, help himself to the money. He apparently loved money. And he had wrapped himself and his identity around the money bag. Much like an idol, it began to hold him and control him. Rather than Judas managing the money, the money begins to manage Judas. So it is with your idols. So it is with mine. Well, Jesus tells Judas and the others that Mary had done a beautiful thing, preparing him for his death. But Judas is fuming. So he runs in this moment, speaks to the Sanhedrin. I mean, how can someone like Judas be led so far away from deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me? Certainly a lot's happened in the three plus years that Judas was following Jesus Christ. A lot has taken place since Judas first heard Jesus say, Judas, come, follow me. The initial luster and thrill that came along with being in a group that's led by a rabbi, let alone a rabbi like Jesus, had long passed. And the fact is the gospel may have clicked for Judas intellectually, but it never sank down into his heart. He never understood Jesus in terms of faith and personal sacrifice to follow him. He was never born again. And as I read this, and I consider how many times Jesus spoke about money, so often in the four gospels, it's potential danger and the way that it can cost us our lives. I wonder, did Judas ever think of applying the warnings of Jesus to his own life? Or as he was sitting there in the group with Jesus, as he taught so many people, was he only thinking about how it landed on other people? Did he ever replay the words of Jesus in his head? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. What did he do with that verse? How did he apply that? How did he think through that? In his moment of sin and temptation, did, that, did, he, did he recall these things? Or was that for somebody else? Or do you hear it live and like, ooh, that's good, and then forget it? Like all of us do so often. This is so sad. This is so, so sad. I mean, you see extravagant worship on one, and you see extravagant self-absorption on the other. Judas has always made my heart heavy with sympathy. Not judgment or pride. I don't look at Judas and think, how could he do such a thing? He ruined it all. For some, I know it's easy to dismiss Judas as a villain and victim 
maybe, and you just hate him. Like your worst, second worst character in the Bible, right? The serpent, Satan, and Judas. Two horrible people in the Bible. I guess I'm struck by the fact that in many ways, Judas is a lot like me. Y'all, I was so very religious. This is my 28th year of pastoral ministry. It's my 14th as a Christian. I was very religious, but I wasn't a Christian. I was educated in professional Christianity, in Christian counseling, in biblical theology, in church history, in church ministry. But I wasn't a Christian. I followed Christianity, but I didn't follow Jesus. And now we all know the story of Judas. He was a follower of the person of Jesus. He was a preacher of the gospel, but there was a double-mindedness about him. He loved money, and he tried loving Jesus too. And in the end, Judas abandoned the faith that he once professed, that he once preached with such power and conviction, proving Paul and the rest of the New Testament that Judas was never truly converted. But my friend, as you read this, Hold it as a mirror. What about you? I'm asking you today, is God in your life? And what do you look at for evidence that God is in your life? You can know the Bible. You can have radical wisdom. You can do wonderful things for others. That doesn't make you a Christian. Have you been converted? like from the inside out, something that you did not do? Have you been born again? Have you been made alive by the power of God Almighty at work in your mind and heart and soul? Does Jesus live within you? Have you been born again and set free and forgiven? Are you saved? Are you a Christian and you know it? Have all things about your life become different in some way? Have they become new and different? Or have you simply become more active doing religious activities with Christian people? There's a huge difference. Are you trying in your own strength to will something into being because you feel around Christian folk ashamed, scared, or guilty? Or you're just trying to fit in Christian culture because it's a safe place to meet people? Are you a Christian? You don't drift in becoming a Christian. You don't become a Christian by walking into a church building and putting money in a basket. You don't walk into a garage and become a car. It doesn't work like that. Nor does doing Christian activities make one a Christian. That's foolishness. And so many have tried. Is the fruit of the Spirit of God flourishing and growing in your life? Fruit, like evidence. Do people point to things within you and you feel things within you where you know this is the working of God in my life? Is that there? Now, I'm not asking how much do you know about the Bible. I'm not asking how active you are in church gatherings or how often or how much you serve in the church. I'm not asking how much money that you give to the church or how often you give to the church or how many times people look at you for advice and good counsel. That must mean I'm a Christian because people always come to me and ask me questions about faith and Christianity. I'm not asking about that. I'm not asking how many people have been changed and maybe even saved and become Christians because of your influence. 
I'm asking, has your life been changed by God? Have you been made alive? Is there peace within your life? Is there a growing and developing poise within your wits about yourself and self-control? Is there a growing and flourishing humility and acceptance of God and his way? Is there a hunger for God? Is there a hunger for his word? Is there faith that's developing, trusting God to live life God's way? and not your way, not your preferences, not what you feel would be true, but going off of what God says is true. Judas didn't have peace. He had skepticism. He didn't have humility. He had swagger and pride. He was protecting himself. He had greed, not generosity or goodness or patience. When money was spent in a manner he disagreed with, he got angry because it had to make sense to him or it was wrong. He became rageful. He had certain power. He did. He had certain authority. He had knowledge, but he did not see Jesus as Savior. Friend, we can jerry-rig our behavior without having our hearts changed by the power of God. Ask Judas. We can be busy with religious activities and be working against Jesus. Ask the Pharisees. Judas was committed He sacrificed things to follow Jesus. He was actively involved in the OG Christian ministry, like firsthand. He had certain power and authority to cure diseases. He cured diseases. He healed people. He preached, they were saved and baptized. He saw people through his own hands and prayers be freed from demons before his very eyes. He was a gospel preacher. All of this is wonderful, but none of this is a guarantee that you're a Christian. He walked with Jesus. He listened to Jesus for three years. He saw the greatest life ever lived up close, personal, and firsthand. He had the best mentor ever. He was discipled by the very best. He witnessed hundreds of miracles, the lame healed, leaping, running, the blind being instantly healed, singing. He saw that. He was a participant when 4,000 folks were fed and when 5,000 folks were fed with just a little bit of bread and a little few fish. He was in the boat when he saw Jesus calm the storm. He was there. Lazarus, dead and alive, he saw that. He heard the marvelous, astonishing teachings of Christ. The Sermon on the Mount, he was there. The narrow road, the wide road, he was there. Take up your cross, he was there. The prodigal son, he heard it. Build your life on the rock, he could quote it. The warnings to the religious and the self-righteous, those with no faith, he was there, he heard it. Tellings of hell and eternal separation from God, he could recite these from memory. All this is true. And yet this man still betrayed Jesus and this man was not a Christian. You know why? Because none of that matters. None of that makes you a Christian. It takes simple, almost humiliating simple, childlike faith to be a Christian. Simple faith in Jesus alone. And that's all, period. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to that cross I cling. Not your church attendance, not your gospel fluency, not your financial generosity, not your kindness, not your heart for the poor, not your influence, not your Bible reading dedication. Simple faith in Jesus. That defines the Christian.
are you a Christian? If not, I beg you to ask God for faith. I beg you to ask God for forgiveness. Tell God that you want to believe him. Tell God, I, I want to believe you and I need you to help me believe you. I've got doubts and struggles. I need you to help me through my doubts and struggles because I really want to believe you. Will you please help me believe you? I mean, you know, after Jesus, after Judas betrays Jesus later on, you know what Jesus does to Judas within just a few hours? He washes his feet, feet that would soon walk away from him to bring the religious to arrest him with clubs and swords. That's the Messiah. And he told him, whatever you're going to go do, do it quickly. I've got work to do. But you know what else? That's not all. He served him communion. He said, Judas, this is my body and this is my blood. Take and eat. So we know that communion doesn't make you a Christian either. Jesus Christ loves to the very end. Do you know this personally? Do you know about Jesus or do you know Jesus? Is Jesus theoretical or theological for you and not personal? Don't make that mistake. Please don't make that mistake. Do you know the peace that comes with knowing God personally through Jesus? Well, for those who aren't Christians yet, that are among us, I'm asking two things. I'm asking that you be careful. And I'm asking that you believe Jesus. I want you to be careful. Scripture teaches that you're blind. You're blind to your true need for forgiveness and redemption. The Bible tells us that if you're not a Christian, that you're currently separated from God and true life and peace and that you're heading to hell. Therefore, pray for God to open your eyes to see your need for forgiveness and for the willingness and boldness to find that forgiveness in and through Jesus Christ. I want you to be careful. And if there's anything in you whatsoever that's considering these things, anything whatsoever that's in you that's saying, pray, do it. Please do it. Act on that. That's called grace. And you must respond to that because you might not ever feel that again. You believe Jesus and you call out to him for forgiveness and salvation. You believe that you're a sinner in need of salvation and redemption and forgiveness. And you believe Jesus, that he came to live and die and beat death for you. And you confess this to God. You confess your sin to him. And you tell somebody else, I think God's saving me. You believe Jesus. To those who have yet to experience saving grace and forgiveness of Christ, this whole spending your life on Jesus seems a little ridiculous, doesn't it? A little bit over the top. I pray for your soul to be awakened by the power of the Holy Spirit leading you to salvation. If you don't look to Jesus for forgiveness, you're gonna try so many other things and you're gonna work so hard. You're gonna look so hard. You're gonna look everywhere. You're gonna work yourself to death trying to find peace and you will never find it. Don't expect that spouse to give it to you. Don't expect your kids and their athletic dominance and academic excellence give it to you. It won't. 
You can only find this peace in Jesus Christ. Not a greater paycheck, not being free from your addiction, only through Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you're gonna grow weary, tired, arrogant, proud, angry, joyless, and you're gonna be that old person who's so bitter. And you're gonna wonder, how did I get this way? It's because you looked for peace in all the wrong places. You looked for forgiveness. You looked, how do I manage my life? You looked for that answer in everything except Jesus Christ. You must be saved by Jesus. And friend, once your heart is softened and illuminated by the grace of God, then out of thankfulness and gratitude, you're gonna pursue God, know God, treasure him, spend your life for him. You'll find purpose and you'll find peace. Guaranteed. And so my prayer for you is that your soul would be set free so that you can taste and see that God is good. And when you do, you'll wonder, why did it take me this long to get here? This is what I've been looking for. You'll learn that he's for you and that he loves you perfectly because of Jesus. Be careful and believe Jesus. Now for my friends who are Christians, be careful and be comforted. Be careful, I want you to guard your heart, Christian. I want you to fight the drift. I want you to pray that you're not led into temptation but delivered from it. I'm asking that you pray. Matthew 26, 41, watch and pray. Jesus says, that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The God part within me wants to fight this sin, but my flesh is so weak it wants to give in. Pray. Get on your knees in prayer and pray. Like my great-grandpa would say, pray, pray. Pray. Get low before the Lord Jesus in pure, honest humility. Get low, get comfortable getting low before the Lord and stay low and get to the cross daily in continued growing dependence upon the Lord and stay there. And be careful what you allow to influence you, especially in these days where we're so very prone to consume and be controlled and influenced by so much media. Christian, I'm calling you to set your mind and your heart's attention on good things and holy things only. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things and nothing else. Scrolling through Netflix. Let it be filtered through this grid. If it doesn't fit this grid, find a different show. That's following Jesus and not letting the world influence you. You're far more influenced than what you think you are. Me too. So easily influenced. We're so gullible. And we don't realize it. We don't realize the change that happens to us because it's so subtle. It's the way the enemy wants it. If it's too quick, we'll notice it. But when it's subtle and soft and easy, you just kind of drift into it. Be holy, for the God who saves you is holy. Pursue godliness. Without holiness, no one will ever see God. And now be comforted. Psalm 119.50. This is my comfort in my affliction, 
that your promise gives me life. You know, when you read someone like Judas being used by the enemy, by, by the deceiver, it might bring up fear. <laughs> might bring up a certain level of uneasiness. And I, I certainly understand this. But be comforted. Hear what Jesus says about you, Christian, in John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. Uh, they know me. I give them eternal life, and they're never going to perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand, not even the deceiver. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one will be able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Christian, you are safe. You are secure. You're not the one holding your salvation together. Be afraid if that's true of you. But Christian, that's not true of you. You are loved. You're protected. Isaiah 41.10, so do not fear, for I'm with you. Do not be dismayed, for I'm your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. None will be snatched out of his hand. He'll lose none of all that are his. And rest assured, if you're a Christian, it's not your fault. And the one whose fault it is for making you a Christian is faithful to complete the work that he started with you and in you. And so chosen, elect of God, you're safe and secure. Be comforted. In Christ, Ephesians 1, in Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, Christian, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed him, you were sealed, not almost. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee or in the context, he's the down payment of greater things to come. He's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire full possession of it to the praise of his glory. When you feel under attack, Christian, when you feel like you're being pestered by evil and temptation, oppressed by demons, look to our Jesus who experienced these same things yet without sin. Every single time Jesus was tempted, he rebuked Satan with truth, with the truth of scripture. And so when you're tempted, don't fight in your strength. Don't fight in your own wisdom and wit. The flesh, is, the flesh is not adequate. It's not enough. It's too weak. You've got to tap into something more robust, more strong, more reliable, more powerful. It is the word of God. The spirit is willing. The spirit is capable. The spirit is strong. Lean into that, not the flesh. Fighting temptation on your own is like trying to win a tug of war with a moving train. You're not going to win. You fight sin, temptation, and evil with the word of God. Cherish the word of God. Remove skepticism from the word of God and go all in and live it and obey it and apply it. We're told in John 8, 32, that to know the truth, the truth will set you free. Later, Jesus says in John 17, 15, I do not ask that you take, he's talking to God the Father, I'm not asking that you take my children, my, my brothers and sisters out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world. We're not supposed to be. Just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Fight sin and temptation and fight the drift, not with flesh and blood. Fight it all with the word of God. It is true. It is the truth. Be careful and be comforted. In and through the life of Jesus, we have life, eternal life, and peace. And the comfort of the Holy Spirit his very spirit is dwelling in the heart of every Christian, guarding the Christian, strengthening the Christian, if they'll humble themselves, if they'll follow his prompting and leading. 
Christian, God is much more than with you. He's in you. He's at work. You can trust him. Deuteronomy chapter 31, 6 says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you, and he will never leave you nor forsake you. Yes, be careful, but also be comforted. And contrary to what your flesh may feel and what the message of our fallen world is sending you, it is so worth spending the rest of your life on Jesus for his glory. So do it, do it well. And I pray for you as you continue to faithfully respond to Jesus out of gratitude, a growing humility, and growing thankfulness. Your affections for Jesus Christ and God the Father, know this, they are fueled by you realizing that you've been forgiven, truly forgiven from all that you've done. Becoming more and more aware of this opens a floodgate of appreciation and affection towards Jesus that makes pouring out that 300 days wages ointment on Jesus look like a good start where there's so much more that can be given. You know, the best way to ensure that our minds and hearts are protected from the evil one is to have God and his spirit protecting us and looking out for us. That's a byproduct of Christ's work for us. It's through his hard, finished work, the work of Jesus Christ as us and for us, that we're not only protected in this life, but we're guaranteed eternal protection and peace and comfort. And every bit of this hope is ours, not because of us, but because of Jesus. Our hope and our peace comes only through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And this is what we focus on as we share communion this morning. Christian, I want you to remind yourself of the truth of the gospel. Remember his work for you. And remember these words as we take communion this morning. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What does it profit you if you gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? What will you give in return or exchange for your soul? We're going to have servers on either side of the stage, self-serve stations in the back. You're going to take bread, dip it into the juice of the wine, remembering the life of Christ and the death of Christ. Let's pray. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. We proclaim the mystery of the faith that Christ has lived, he's died, he's risen, and he's coming again. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be on this time of worshiping, responding, remembering, this time of communion. And triune God, we pray and acknowledge that you're remaining with us through the end of the age. Amen. Christian, when you're ready, please come and take. Remembering Jesus Christ, you can come when you're ready. You've been listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.